Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <music> Hello, this is Frank Rausch uh, with Christian Studies Channel of New Books uh, Network. I just finished having a really fascinating interview with Dr. Anthony Centaro uh, discussing his book, Exile and Embrace, Contemporary Religious Discourse on the Death Penalty. This is, in many ways, a really fascinating work because uh, Dr. Centaro explores the death penalty from really a wide variety of lenses. He talks about uh, churches' views towards the death penalty in the United States. He talks about Bible studies about the death penalty. He looks at uh, Virginia governor's race that centers around the death penalty. He talks about death penalty chaplains. He really talks a lot of, uh, about a lot of different things, approaching this from a lot of different lenses. And what's really fascinating, too, is that while he himself is a death penalty abolitionist, he's someone who wants to get rid of the death penalty, and he's very honest about that in this book, it's also very objective and fair towards people who are retentionists who want to keep the death penalty. And he's also very good at drawing lots of connections about the death penalty. Uh, he's talks about, for example, um, this discourse in Virginia and his book is most, much of his sources are case studies and uh, of Virginia and these Bible studies he's running. So he, he does that, but he also connects them to global and national trends in the death penalty. So I I really, uh, I can't say I enjoyed reading this book, of course, because of the subject matter, but I did find it very, very thought-provoking. And I think uh, it's an interesting book to read, and I hope that you will enjoy this uh, interview with Dr. Santaro. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Anthony Santaro about his new book, Excel and Embrace. Contemporary Religious Discourse on the Death Penalty. Uh, Anthony, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Franklin. It's great to be here. Oh, we're very much happy to have you. So I'd like to just first start at the interview by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I am I'm a native Virginian, uh, which comes through in the book. Uh, one of the main reasons that I focus on uh, Virginia as the case study in my national study of the way the churches and other institutions of faith interact with the death penalty is my interest in the system in my home state. I did my undergraduate education at the University of Virginia, um, and then I was out of school for about five years before going back to graduate school. Um, what, one of the things that I did in that period of time was I worked for a nonprofit organization in Virginia called the Virginia Mitigation Project. Uh, what we did was we provided indigent defendants with a comprehensive mitigation defense at the sentencing phase of capital trials. And so this is some of the practical nuts and bolts experience that I had with the system that I brought with me in when I came to here to Heidelberg, uh, to the Heidelberg Center for American Studies, to do my MA and then my PhD. I had no real intention of getting back into the death penalty as a subject of research when I left. And in fact, I wrote my MA thesis on the religious elements, the prophetic figurings in the various um, confessions, the various publications of Nat Turner's confessions, the original 1831 document with Thomas Gray's name on it, and then the 1960s novel by William Styron. That turned into my first article um, about two years after that. And then when I started the doctoral research, I started off somewhere else entirely and through a series of discrete but probably related, if now forgotten, steps, I wound up working my way back towards this issue. Where I had started was looking at particular contemporary mixtures of Christianity and religion more generally in the political system, in, in elections. And through that series of steps, I wound up coming back to the question that really animates the core of the book, which is what is, what is the death penalty? Right. Well, and just to, if I could, could ask one more thing, how does in Virginia figure into this case study and into the death penalty in general in the United States? Virginia is a very 
typical state in a lot of ways. It's also somewhat atypical in a lot of ways, in, in, in ways that make it, I think, a very useful case study on this particular issue. Um, most of the glory, so to speak, goes to Texas and now Oklahoma, to right. the, the nation's busiest death rows. Virginia, until it was overtaken by Oklahoma, had the second busiest death row since 1976. Um, at the time that I wrote the book, you more than more than uh, just about 50 percent of executions since 1976 had taken place in Virginia and in Texas. The churches in Virginia have been active for decades on both sides of the issue. It's true as a matter, you know, it's it's a historical fact that the the death penalty has always been a part of the United States. Uh, the Jamestown Colony was founded in 1607. In 1608, they had the first hanging. Um, and so over the last 400 years, but for that four-year period between 1972 and 1976, when the Supreme Court had temporarily stricken down the death penalty, you could track it by virtue of opposition to it. That is, you could, tra- you could track the status quo by looking at the challenges to that status quo. And the churches have always been a part of those challenges to the status quo in Virginia as, as elsewhere. They have also been active on the other side. They've always the churches have also been active on the side that supports the death penalty. And so where I started with this was actually I was looking at the 2005 gubernatorial campaign between Jerry Kilgore, the then attorney general, a conservative Baptist retentionist Republican, and Tim Kaine the then lieutenant governor, a relatively uh, moderate liberal Catholic abolitionist. And this is the first time this is the first time in the modern era, certainly, that Virginia has had a major party candidate for governor who actively opposes the death penalty and is willing to come out and say it and make it part of his campaign that He's he he's against it because his Catholic faith teaches him that life is sacred, but he will uphold the law and carry out executions if he's elected governor. So right. this catches my attention, and the discussion and the the broad discourse among the churches on both sides is probably the last step that pulled me in in this process of moving towards this as the as the main research project. Okay, excellent. That's really uh, interesting. I, I didn't know until I read this how important Virginia was uh, in this regard. So then, as kind of a segue, how did you then come to write Exile and Embrace? Well, it this was this is the classic dissertation that get, that gets turned into a book. Um, and so I went through that that rather thankless process, as as you know, of of trying to learn absolutely everything I could about the subject and then distilling it to the big question that I wanted to try to answer, which is, like I said, what, what is it? What is this thing that we're doing? Um, it all came back in a sense to some of the experiences that I had with the Virginia Mitigation Project, uh, where we were dealing with churches and we would meet with people of faith and we would have conversations with them uh, at events, at abolitionist events, we would have conversations with people in in public who you know, people with whom we disagreed and who who disagreed with us. But it was striking to me how often that faith or church teaching or biblical teaching would come into the conversation. It was striking to me how frequently people would go to their religion as the, 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 the articulation and the basis for their position on either side. And so when I, had, when, I, when I found my way here through the Kang-Kilgore election, it was important for me to get closer to the ground level, the nuts and bolts of why that might be the case, away from the social science studies and away from the historical studies, away from the theological uh, abstract conversation into what it is that religion does that, that motivates people on either side of the argument. And that's really what I was trying to get at here in this book by looking at the various portions and the various phases of the capital punishment process from the perspective of people of faith who are involved with them from the most abstract uh, church statements of doctrine and social statements uh, all the way to the most concrete 
which in this book is the death row chaplains who accompany the condemned to the execution chamber in those last moments. That was one thing I really appreciated about your book was the rich um, details and the various perspectives that you walk the reader through. And that's something I just want to, to note for our readers that you're going to learn a lot when you read this book, uh, <laughs> a lot more than I, I realized I would. I just thought it was going to be kind of more of an argument or a kind of more opinion, but it was a lot of factual information that I, I certainly enjoyed. I wonder then if you could walk us a little bit through the introduction of your book. Sure. The, well, you, you say that you had expected an argument, and that was actually something that I had set out explicitly not to do. I, there, there are enough of those, right? And I've read more than enough of those. And at some point, when you read enough of those, you start to see that the, the, those arguments, pro and con, have only really changed a couple of times over the last couple of thousand years. And they really only change when a particular technology arises that forces the debate to change. You know, new state formations, um, new theories of governance, uh, so the political technologies, those will change the debates, or new methods of execution, those will change the debates. Electrocution, lethal injection, maybe a return to the firing squad, as, as several states are discussing right now. So the constancy of those arguments is stunning from, from the Roman Empire forward, and I had no desire whatsoever to contribute to that conversation. Right. Um, what I tried to do in the introduction was to really just set the table for everything that's, that's coming afterwards. I wanted to get a couple of sets of perspectives out from people who have had very close personal encounters with capital homicide and with the, the capital punishment, the legal and um, penal processes involved with that, and then lay out my claim in the book, which is basically I – have, I, have, I make three claims here. First – what I found out somewhat to my surprise in, in, in doing this research is that the death penalty has far less to do either with the offender or with their offense than it does with the society that is charged with responding to that offense. That is, it has less to do with them and more to do with us. It's somewhat counterintuitive, uh, but I think that that is absolutely the case. Right. Second, the – Retentionist discourse, the people who advocate on the side of retaining and expanding, typically expanding the use of the death penalty, and the abolitionist discourse, the people on the other side who want to do away with it, are very, very much alike in how they see the problems posed by the death penalty, how they see the problems posed by criminality in general, and how they see the problem of personal responsibility. And they're, they're essentially Cartesian humanists, right? They take people to be generally rational, calculating beings who are capable of making a generic cost-benefit analysis before they undertake any particular kind of action. Right. Where they differ is that the retentionists tend to see things in terms of an event-based perspective. And abolitionists tend to see things in terms of a process-based perspective. So when we're talking about issues like the commission of the crime itself, uh, how we should understand and contextualize and come to terms with that crime, how we should respond, the nature of punishment, the nature of forgiveness. These things in the retentionist discourse are almost categorically event-based. Um, for the abolitionists, they're part of a continuum. They're part of a process. And so that's really the only divergence between those two sides. And the third thing that I found out is – both the retentionists and the abolitionists um, deal with the idea of a scapegoat. They, they accept that sometimes we respond to certain crimes in a way that is designed to try to alleviate some of the problems, some of the social tensions caused by that crime. But where they also agree is that not only must the offender be guilty – of the offense for which they're being punished. Um, but, and both sides do agree on that. They also agree that the offender must be fully culpable for their actions. Otherwise, it's illegitimate to punish them. Um, and so that, those are the three claims that I make in the book. What I wanted to do from there is answer the basic questions of, of, of the who, what, when, where, why, and how. 
The United right. States is virtually alone among its it, it is alone among its Western peer nations in its use of the death penalty. It is globally the death penalty is employed in the Middle East, uh, in parts of Africa, though a majority of African nations are now abolitionist, and in South and East Asia. In Europe, except for Belarus, uh, throughout the Americas, with some small exceptions, typically in the Caribbean, the rest of the world is abolitionist, either by law or by practice. That is, they haven't executed someone within the last five or ten years, although they retain the law on the books. So I wanted to put the U.S. into its global context and see the company it keeps in that sense. And the company it keeps is China, Iran, North Korea, Yemen, uh, Egypt, Nigeria, Malaysia, the, Pakistan. Those are the kinds of countries that are our peers on this particular issue. The U.S. is right. also an outlier in another way, and that is predominantly Christian countries, with one exception, are abolitionists, and that exception is the United States. When you look – Karsten Ankar has a, has a very good book on this issue that I used in here. Um, when you look at the dominant religious tradition in a country – you can get a reasonable guess of where it stands on this particular issue. Majority, majority Islamic countries utilize the death penalty. Um, majority Christian countries, with the exception of the U.S., do not. Buddhist countries are about 50-50. Um, Hindu-majority countries do use the death penalty. The only Jewish-majority country is Israel, and they do not. They have not since uh, Adolf Eichmann several decades ago. So that's another thing that I wanted to, to place the U.S. in its context in terms of its dominant faith tradition. I then wanted to look at, a very broadly, a survey of capital punishment in the United States from the colonial era forward and how the system has evolved away from the laws that, are, that were very theocratic in the early colonies, um, the 1611 Dales laws in the Virginia colony, the Massachusetts colon, the various colonies in now Massachusetts and their theocratic laws, the New York colonies, Duke's laws of 1662 that had this very Old Testament, very biblically saturated language as to what shall be punished by what means and for what reason. The first I mentioned a few minutes ago that, that you can track the death penalty historically by looking at opposition to it. The first real opposition to it comes from the Quakers in the late 17th century, but they never really have sufficient numbers to make it an, a meaningful issue, even in Philadelphia where they're a relatively strong presence, at least not until the revolution. And during the revolutionary era and the, the, the constitutional era where the European continental enlightenment is in full swing – among the American intelligentsia, intelligentsia, you start to see a little bit of a shift on this. Cesar Beccaria's essay on crimes and punishment is translated and published in multiple, in multiple forms, in multiple periodicals, in multiple serial editions, and it falls into the hands of people like Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Rush, all of whom advocate for at least limitations on the death penalty from a combination of, in Rush's case, Christian teaching, I mean, Rush goes straight to the Bible to condemn uh, capital punishment. In Franklin and Jefferson's case, more from an Enlightenment perspective. But you have this confluence of ideological and intellectual strains that bring together French and, and some of the Germ Germanic Enlightenment thought, though notably not Kant, uh, into conversation with newer uh, with new appreciations of more classically Christian teachings. That, are advocate, that advocates use to argue for either radical reductions in the numbers of crimes that can be punished with death, as in the case of Franklin and Jefferson, or in Russia's case, and maybe James Madison's, uh, doing away with the death penalty entirely. From there, I take a look at a couple of distinct eras where the abolitionists get the upper hand. There's been about four of them to date, spread through, a, through the 19th century and into maybe into the current era. We've had five states in the last six years abolish the death penalty. New Hampshire came within one vote of doing it last summer and is gearing up for another try this year and during this legislative session. So we may add to that total. What's notable about that is not only the presence and the activity of the churches all across the theological spectrum on both sides of those debates, but how ephemeral 
the gains were. As a, after all of these eras, when a number of states abolish the death penalty for various reasons, virtually all of them bring it back uh, up until the latest era, where now we've got 18 states without uh, capital punishment and 32 that utilize it, which is the lowest number it's been in quite some time. From there, the last, the last thing I wanted to do in the introduction is I really, you know, it's very easy to misunderstand some things about how the death penalty works, particularly the procedural and processual elements of that. So I take a tour um, of the legal process in Virginia as a, as, a, as, a represent, as a representative example of the legal processes nationally, how these cases arise, how someone is charged with a capital crime, how the trial itself works, and how the, the legal process works from conviction all the way through to execution. What happens in the prisons? What is what it, how does death row itself work? Uh, right. How do the appeals work? How does any kind of clemency or mercy consideration work? And ultimately, following the execution itself, what, what happens at that point? Right. Yeah, and I, I really enjoyed your introduction. I thought it really laid out things well. It was very well organized. You did something that I really appreciate being someone who studies religion is that you actually defined what you meant by religion, um, which people often don't do. True, true. They don't. And so I um, – and, and on this point, you know, I, this is something that, again, I, I, the, I don't see this book in, as contributing to a theoretical definition of religion per se, right? This is this – is, my objective in here is not to push – um, for a new way of using the term or a new theoretical lens on this. I'm really using it in the sense of, of, a, of deriving from religious traditions. Right? They are, you know, I, I really adapt Bruce Lincoln's definition where I'm treating religion as minimally characterized by a transcendent discourse that informs practices designed to bring about either a proper human world or proper human subjects which in turn gives rise to a community that identifies itself with regard to these discourses and practices and institutions that are capable of maintaining and adapting these discourses and practices over time. And I think that this is a really useful definition of religion, not just academically, uh, but also in the, in the way we approach social movements and social action and social engagement that is explicitly religiously based. When we're looking at people and groups that are engaged in protest movements or reform movements or social and political campaigns, when they say that they're doing this for religious reasons, this definition that I adapt from Lincoln, I think helps us get into and locate what they're doing within various traditions, within various historical contexts, and in the social context on the ground within which they're operating. Right. And it, I guess the, the first place then you then look to when you're examining this, this discor religious discourse are the churches themselves. That's right. The, what I wanted to do, and I decided this about halfway through the research, I wanted to be able to do two things with the chapter structure. I wanted to be able to move from the most ab – uh, excuse me, the least – wait a minute. I'm, I'm tripping over my own words here. I wanted to, your time. to move from the most abstract – to the most concrete, right? And I see in, in the broad de debates over the death penalty, the church's official statements, their doctrinal statements, their position statements, their social statements, which are you know, not binding the way doctrinal statements are, but still informative for their institutions and their members, strike me as being relatively abstract. They are detached from specifics generally. They're not confined to specific cases. They are position statements categorically. They're also the least directly implicated, and that's the second way I wanted to try to structure the book, was getting from, you know, in addition to from most abstract to least abstract to most concrete, I wanted to go from least implicated directly in the process to most implicated directly in the process. And the churches themselves, again, they are advising, they're speaking, they're taking positions, they're communicating with their member bodies and with their members 
what they think, what they believe that their members should also adhere to, but they're not directly engaged in the process themselves. That changes, though, when you move into, into the churches themselves, into the congregations and into the parishes and into the temples where the parishioners, the congregants, the members are confronting and confronted with church teaching on the issue, which when I did, I did a series of Bible studies um, in 2008 and 2009. One of, there were two things that struck me about that when I was compiling all the data and, and running through the hundreds of hours of interviews that I compiled out of that. There were a substantial number of people who told me that they were uncomfortable with the fact that their churches institutionally were not being altogether communicative on this issue. They, some of them resented my presence there. This is the, this is the peril that, that, that lies before any field researcher. Some people were mistrustful of what I wanted to do and they didn't, they just didn't appreciate what they saw as an intrusion on their process. And they're perfectly entitled to, to that. I have no problem with that at all. There were a, a, a larger number of people, though, who told me afterwards that they were grateful that they had had a chance to engage with this issue from the perspective of their faith tradition, because typically they don't. Typically, the churches that they, that they attended that were doing these things, this is not something that comes up particularly often. There's no, there's no moment in the liturgical calendar for this, um, and it's just frequently left unsaid. It was something that was striking that people in an Episcopal church would say, I knew more about Catholic teaching on this issue <laughs> than I ever knew that the Episcopal church said. I didn't know that the Episcopal church had a position on this. I now do. I may or may not agree. Someone said they think that the church was wrong, but now they know. And now they can think about it in a different light. Uh, and that was one of the things that I found particularly valuable in this was to see how frequently – the churches are not communicating this and, and how many of the parishioners and the congregants wish that they were, for better or worse. They, want to, they, they may not agree with the church's position, but they want to know what it is because they want to be able to frame their own experiences and their own thinking on the issue in light of what their church teaches because that's important to them. And it's a missing piece in their process of thinking about these relatively substantial life and death issues if the church is not communicating it to them. The other thing that I found that was equally striking was that almost everyone, to the point that I could categorically say everyone who was involved in these discussions, whether they identified as strongly in favor of the death penalty or strongly opposed or somewhere in the middle, everyone had a point beyond which their notional support or their notional opposition broke down. Everybody had that hypothetical where we should kill them all and let God sort them out, except maybe in this case. Or on the other side, we should abs- – you know, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and we should not repay evil with evil except when. So there's this – so everybody is in this very, very broad but relatively discreet middle ground. There's nobody really at the edges on either side. And once that comes out clearly in the course of these conversations – and I think that the context helped. It made for a very, very profitable series of, of, of targeted discussions. And when I say that I think the context helped, I think that being in churches and having these conversations took some of the heat out of them in a way that maybe would not have been the case in other public settings. That, being, that having the sessions opening and closing with a prayer took some of the spice out of the conversation in a way that may not have been the case in other kinds of settings. It, it framed the reflection and it framed the conversation in such a way that people reacting and were, were engaging differently than I had ever seen. And I have seen these conversations in public in a number of different venues, in a number of different settings. These were different. And I, as someone who has worked as an abolitionist uh, and as someone who remains interested in the death penalty as a research topic, and particularly the links between religion and, and capital punishment. This was something that was eye-opening to me. So this is, this last two chapters you're talking about, really, really fascinating, because I enjoyed um, how you brought that connection in. And I thought, this is, again, this another strength of your book, 
is how you're able to look at things from a lot of different perspectives. I mean, you have, there's this more kind of analytical view of how do churches talk about the death penalty, what are their statements, and then, hey, here's what's happening in the pews, uh, and here's what's happening in these Bible studies. And I, I especially enjoyed some of the details you gave in the Bible studies about your interaction with the people. Yeah, some of those conversations were remarkable. I, the, the, the things that, that people were bothered by and the things that people wanted to discuss, you know, the, these conversations, I, I tried to approach this. I was hopeful when I was designing the research end of this that I could approach this in terms of not just what people are talking about when they confront the death penalty, but what else they're talking about. And I was very lucky that that actually played out. What I mean by that is... The, the, we know that the, we know the broad poles within which the discussion on capital punishment itself is going to work out. But what was unpredictable was the way that people related this to other events in their lives. Uh, when we're talking about Cain and Abel, the, the sort of the classic biblical homicide story, right? Cain is consumed by jealousy. He ignores the warning that sin is at your door and you must master it. Strikes down his brother, and and. At the end of this, I'm shocked by how I'm surprised by how many people identify with Cain. This has never been right. my experience in engaging with the story in other Bible study sessions and things. No, because look, we one of the one of the guys said quite emphatically, no, we all we all want recognition. We all want to be seen as good at what we're doing. We want to be seen as good at who we are. And when we don't get it, we can snap. We can do these kinds of things. When people look at the stoning of Stephen in the Acts and somebody says, who's the hero of this story? And there's this moment of silence where people are thinking about it and two options come out. It's either Jesus or alternatively, it's the first person to put down the rock and walk away. And so the question that comes out after that is, who would we want to be? Well, we would want to be the person that puts down the rock, but... Would we be? Right. And there's this moment of you know, these engaged reflections. People bring it into one woman told this remarkable story about her grandchildren. Um, she said, well, you know, my son's a minister, so they, they know all this language. But when they do something to each other, when they hurt each other, they don't. And then one of them apologizes. The, the response is not. It's OK. The response, and it may take a little while from them, but the response is, I forgive you. Right. She said there's such a categorical difference in the way these two things are offered that it changes the way the siblings relate with each other. And I think that's part of what I'm trying to show here in the process versus the event-based perspectives. Um, one of the deacons in one of the churches mentioned a few times in a couple of sessions that he's still mad at Cain because Cain – as, as we read that narrative in Genesis, Cain does not repent. Right. He's pouty and petulant and childish, but he doesn't repent yet. Right? And this deacon says that the, the most important thing for him when he confronted that story again was the realization that there might actually be a yet there. Cain hasn't repented yet, but maybe he'll be brought around to that. Maybe this right. will color how we deal with criminals who commit horrible evil actions, maybe yet there's a chance that they can repent, they can try to make some sort of amends, they can come home to themselves, they can wake up in the pig pen and do the work of coming back home yet. On the other side, there are people who, add, who look at these stories and say, no, tell them you've got, you want to repent, you've got a week, get right with God or don't, but on Thursday afternoon at 4 p.m., we're sending you into eternity. Right. And then there are the questions that, that sort of interrogate where we don't necessarily think about what we know. And this is one of the things that I'm trying to get out in the book, too, is everybody the, – the, the death penalty is omnipresent in the U.S. But one of the questions that I wanted to ask, and I try to do so without sounding you – know, without, without any kind of backhanded intent, have we really thought about what that means for us? Have we really thought about what it means to use death – to witness to life, which is what we do as a people. Um, you're in South Carolina. My home state is Virginia. Those two states are executing states. They utilize the death penalty. Our states, in our names, use death to witness to life. Well, what does that mean? 
And the example I'm thinking of here is one of the discussions, I want to say it opened with this, but this was just about the worst discussion opener I've ever encountered in terms of <laughs> um, Okay. How many people here think Moses should have been put to death for murdering that Egyptian? And <laughs> silence in the room, right? You know, if, it, if, it, if we were in the classroom, you know, students would be frantically checking their smartphones under the desk and thinking that we don't see them. I mean, it's this kind of silence that nobody wants to engage with this question because the answer is, of course not. But then, well, you know, he did kill the guy. He did bury him in the sand. He did look this way and that. He did flee when he discovered that this thing is known. Maybe this isn't all on the up and up, but it's that kind of dislocation of ourselves from the context that we know, dislocation and putting a new angle on things that we know so thoroughly that we don't even realize that we don't know them particularly well, and then trying to gain a perspective on them and reintegrate them into our experience, into our understandings, into what we do know, and into the, the evolution of our own thoughts and beliefs. This is what comes through really vividly in these Bible studies and what I hope comes through in that chapter. I think it comes through very, very well. And one thing that strikes me also about your book is how important the, the title is. Um, that Sometimes a book title is very forgettable, but this one is Exile and Embrace. And in chapter four, you really start to talk about why it's named that. Yeah. This is something that, I, again, this is something that occurred to me at about the midpoint in the research is that I was seeing, uh, I was had a conversation with Marie Deans, who was my boss at the, uh, at the, the mitigation project. And this was half conversation, half interview. And I was describing what, what struck me as sort of a, a, a locative phenomenon in these discussions. And that is proponents of the death penalty, death penalty supporters discursively work very hard to bring the offender in to make them appear as normal as possible in order to claim warrant to punish, even to the extent of taking life. Abolitionists tend to do the exact opposite thing. They try typically to push the offender as far away as possible, to give any indication that this person isn't, diff isn't like us, that they're not normal in that sense, that they are mentally ill, or that they're developmentally challenged, or that they had suffered horrible physical, emotional, sexual abuse, that they were drug addicts, that any, you know, any number, anything that differentiates the offender from the quote-unquote normal person. And what I'm seeing in this is that they're making these opposite moves to achieve their desired end, right? The retentionists are embracing the offender, making them more like them, more like us, in order to have warrant to then exile them. Whereas abolitionists are exiling the offender metaphorically, that is to pushing them away and making them non-normal, making them clearly different in order to leave open the possibility of a later embrace, of a later um, reconciliation of whatever form. And so I start, once I start thinking in terms of these, these opposed locative movements, then a lot of the discussions fell into a pattern that I could make sense of very quickly at every level of the discourse, from the churches on down to the, to the death row chaplains. Um, exile and embrace are verbs. They are nouns, that is, their states of being. Exile is a state of being at or removed from. You know, being the prodigal son who wakes up in the pig pen, that is a moment of exile. The return home to the father in that narrative is a moment of embrace, when the arms are opened. Um, they are separating and binding, they, each of them, and in, in different ways to different ends. The separation comes from the distinction from the normal, and whatever point in the process the exile action, the action of exiling the offender is taken, um, but that's the moment in which they are most bound to us most fully, because we're using ourselves as the definition of what is normal, Comparing them to us is an act that is both separating and binding. And both the exilic component and the embracing component of the two sides' arguments engage in the separating and binding at exactly the same time, which is where I come to the conclusion in the final chapter that this is not necessarily a sequential process. These are part and parcel of our reactions 
to these events, to these, to these crimes. Right. And I also, I thought very interesting was when we were talking about the introduction, you mentioned this term scapegoat. And in this chapter, you really start to go in more detail about that. This was something that I had another happy accident. I had, I had been reading some scapegoat theory, particularly Rene Shahad before I went into the fuel research. But when I started doing interviews with death row chaplains and Catholic worker activists and other people that were intimately involved with the process, I was shocked at how many times people said, have you read this? You, have, you can't do something with the death penalty unless you've read this. You can't understand it unless you read this book called The Scapegoat. Um, one chaplain said to me, if you don't have a copy, I'll give you my copy. This was given to me by a friend of mine who worked on death row before I did. He said, if you're getting into this, you have to read this book. So one of the reasons I'm using the scapegoat um, as, as prominently as I am is not just for the analytic purposes and the analytic value it has, but I'm also talking to those people who are involved with the process and who do see it in these kinds of terms. The idea of the scapegoat is basically four points. It is in response to a real social crisis, first. Second, real victims are selected. Third, to bear real violence. Fourth, in the hopes of resolving the social crisis. Right? So in an era of rampant violent crime or rising violent crime or ramp, you know, rising gun, whatever, you know, whatever language it's put in, there's not much room for reasonable disagreement that there is a problem with violent crime in the United States. All right, so there's the social crisis. In response to that crisis, real individuals, offenders, are subject to real acts of violence, in this case, execution, in the hopes of resolving the crisis, whether by deterrence, whether by expiation, or via some other mechanism. This is the idea of the scapegoat, which almost perfectly explains the American death penalty. When you add in that fifth criterion of legal guilt plus adequate culpability, that's where I think you get the whole theoretical explanation in one framework. Right, right. And I really got a lot out of that. I found this this really fascinating, um, this kind of idea that, you know, this theory works, but we need a bit more. And also, I was really struck at how, I think it's that chapter you begin with with the death row uh, chaplain <laughs> saying, you have to read this. Yeah. That was, and when I heard that for the second and third time, I thought, all right, I was really on to something when I found this. And this, this really has to be uh, a part of it. Because one of the things I want to do with this uh, is I want this to be a meaningful book not just to uh, my peers in the academy. I want people that are engaged with this process on either side to be able to look at this and see reflected in here what they know from their experiences. And I want them, I want to provide a way for them to see things anew or to give voice to things that they have known and felt but maybe have not been able to express themselves or to provide a platform for people who are interested in the issue and troubled on one side or the other to be able to look at it, have it make a different kind of intuitive sense, a kind of emotional and analytical and intellectual intuitive sense that will then give them a little bit more of a basis from which to come to their own conclusions on the subject. I think that's one of the, the successes of this book is it's written from the abolitionist perspective, but is extraordinarily fair towards the retentionist perspective. I am very and, glad to hear that because that was absolutely an objective of mine. I make, no, I make no secret of the fact, in fact, I declare it very early in introduction of the preface or somewhere thereabouts, I am an abolitionist. I think this is a social evil. I think that we'd be much better off without it. I think that when we do the hard work of reflecting on the problem of violence and the deceptive ease of the solution that we've devised for ourselves, we'll see that we get nothing out of it and all it does is harm us. But I had no intention, just as I had no intention of writing another just pro-con argument sermon, uh, uh, survey, I had absolutely no intention of writing an abolitionist tract. I may at some point, but this is not it. This was a book that I, where I wanted to represent as fairly as I possibly could the arguments on both sides and to take them seriously. And that's why one of the things that I try to do is I adopt a second person 
um, pronoun throughout. That is, we are doing this. We are doing this. We say this. We believe this. That was my way of trying to signal sincere engagement with each side without necessarily signaling acceptance of either side. Right. And I was particularly because, you know, this is it's always difficult to be um, objective about religion and also very objective to be diff- um, very difficult to be objective about politics. And in Chapter five, you're doing both. <laughs> <laughs> chapter five was a lot of fun. Uh, this is I mentioned that, that I started with the Kay and Kilgore election. This whole project started there. And chapter five is where I, I, I get to see that through. Um, when I was watching that election unfold, I started to see people just having these remarkable conversations in the blogosphere. And when I say remarkable, I mean that in a very positive sense. They they were having very involved, very detailed, very civil – I need to mention that again because this is the internet after all. They're having very civil, very informed discussions about the death penalty from a biblical perspective, from the, the perspective of their respective political beliefs. And these discussions go on and on and on, and they were fantastic material. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, what had happened was on Rosh Hashanah 2005, which is surely an accident of timing because I can't imagine it was deliberate, uh, an ad, a, a TV ad called Stanley aired in Virginia. Stanley is Stanley Rosenbluth, whose son and daughter-in-law uh, had been murdered several years previously. A couple of days before the ad aired, Tim Kaine, the Democratic lieutenant governor and candidate for governor at that point, had given an interview where if you read it the right way with the right amount of spin, you could read it to say that he doesn't think that Adolf Hitler deserved to be executed. Leaving aside the fact that the jurisdictional question would be very difficult to overcome, (laughs) question of anachronism. This is the basis for the ad. This is someone who doesn't believe that even Adolf Hitler deserves the death penalty. I don't think he's being honest with his views. He says that he'll obey the law, but he's also promoting the fact that his faith says that this is wrong. We can't trust him. There, the, out, the, the response to this is electric. Nobody thinks this is a good ad. Nobody thinks this is a good ad. People notice the timing which did not work in its favor. People noticed the fact that rather than going to Hitler immediately and sort of losing the argument by default, uh, maybe the ad could have talked about the Beltway snipers from a couple of years before, Lee Boyd Malvo and John Allen Muhammad. Maybe they would have made a better and more reasonable baseline comparison. But as the discussions go, forward from there. They, they leave the ad behind very, very quickly, and they really leave the biblical exegesis behind not as quickly. They do, a, they do actually a really solid biblical exegesis of, the New, of New Testament and Old and looking at the various scriptural and contextual um, reasons for and against the death penalty. And then they start to have into a, a fairly nuanced political discussion about what the ideal executive should look like. What powers should the executive have in a pluralist Republican democracy? What authority should that executive have and how should they wield it? As part of this process, I was actually also fortunate enough to sit down with both Tim Kaine and Jerry Kilgore. Both were incredibly gracious hosts. We sat, I had great conversations with both of them and somewhat to my surprise as a jaded um, as a jaded victim of the American political process more often than not, they <laughs> tend to see the executive in, in essentially the same way as a super legislator who's limited in their powers and who's constrained in the way they can deal with these things. Uh, but the, the, that chapter was a lot of fun because not only did I want to try to make heads or tails of this particular conversation and this particular exegesis, I wanted to do it in the context in which it was written, which is online comments on weblogs and other uh, online journals, alongside the very pressing question of, at that point, the, the less pressing question is who should be the next governor. The more pressing question is, well, what do, how do we as a people envision the executive per se, and how should they interact with 
law and with religion, which brings the whole questions of establishment and disestablishment and church-state relations and faith and politics relations as distinct from church-state relations. All of these are, are wrapped up in this conversation. Right, and it was this wonderful exploration of the, in a sense, the democratic process, and that's kind of continued um, in the next chapter, which is dealing with juries, uh, which are very, of course, democratic institutions. Yeah, th thoroughly, thoroughly, um, to, for better or worse in some ways. The jury is a very complicated governmental institution to look at. It is ideally – it is supposed to be a jury of one's peers, right? This is, this is bedrock constitution uh, that all criminal defendants and all criminal matters shall face – uh, shall have the privilege of a trial before a jury of their peers drawn from within the jurisdiction wherein the crime takes place. Can't do that with capital punishment because the law on that recognizes that there are some jurors, potential jurors, who cannot fulfill their, their duties as jurors. Those that believe that every crime should merit a death sentence can no more be seated on a capital murder jury than can those who believe that the death penalty is never warranted um, because they're incapable of carrying out the basic function of that role, which is to decide first guilt and then the sentence. Capital, punish, or capital murder trials, ever since, it was, ever since the death penalty was reinstated in 1976, they've all been bifurcated. That is, there's two separate proceedings. There's a guilt and a sentencing that they're crudely but accurately named. The first trial, the jury is charged with determining whether this particular defendant committed this particular crime beyond a reasonable doubt. If yes, if the, vote, if the verdict is guilty, then the trial will move on to a second trial, the sentencing phase, uh, which is where our work with the mitigation project came in. And this is a separate trial, start to finish, new evidence, new uh, new witnesses, new questioning, at the end of which the jury is charged with determining the sentence, which in death penalty states now is generally, if not exclusively, either death or life without the possibility of parole. In some states, you can choose life without parole plus restitution, where the offender has to work in prison and their, the proceeds from that work, their pay, is treated as restitution to the victim's family. We can see where this might be a little bit problematic. People of faith feel excluded from a fundamental right to be able to sit on a jury. Uh, but more than that, it's the, there's a, a large question of how the legal system can or cannot cope with people of faith. And, it, and this is in the context of the jury being described as the conscience of the community. This is the role that the jury is supposed to perform. It's supposed to bring in its collective wisdom, its collective values, its collective morality, its collective experience, and determine first guilt and then sentence appropriately. It's supposed to act in the way that a conscience can positively act. But what happens when you leave out a substantial portion of that conscience, or even an insubstantial portion of that conscience? Uh, the other thing that I was trying to get at with this chapter is back in, in terms of what we know versus what we don't know. There's a – the legal system changes the people that it engages with. There's a difference, I think, between a defendant who's charged with a crime and an appellant who has been convicted of a crime and is appealing their sentence on some ground or another. Uh, and, and so I wanted to track this process in there as well and see how the system operates at the post-trial, at the trial and the post-trial process, how defendants can make use of their legal rights and how these questions of defendants' rights and appellants' rights and appeals' rights generally, these questions of process are also implicated in and in some cases the same questions of process and access to the courts that face the jurors themselves. And is there a way forward that allow that would allow more people of faith to participate in their fundamental right to sit on a jury 
without sacrificing the integrity of the process. Because whatever I happen to think about capital punishment, it is, it is democratically legitimate in the jurisdictions where it is utilized. That is, the people could vote it out of existence tomorrow if they wanted to do so. They have chosen not to do so. Okay. Is there a way that people of faith can participate in the decision-making process in a way that doesn't bring them into any kind of conflict between what the state views as their faith and what the state views as where it may impermissibly coerce believers and where they have to be excluded from the system wholesale. I think there is. I think that jurors can be, that people objecting to the death penalty can be seated and can serve as jurors in the first trial and then would be replaced by an alternate juror for the second trial, for the sentencing phase. And I suggest that and detail that in that chapter as well. One area where it seems that uh, people of faith are welcome to participate in is as death row chaplains, as you describe in the, the next chapter. That's, that, that's an interesting quirk about Virginia, too. The death row chaplains in Virginia are all volunteers. Um, the, the, the Virginia statement in the, in the state's constitution calling for the separation of church and state is a little bit more strongly worded than is the First Amendment. And it's always been read to prohibit chaplains in the prisons. Um, other states do have prison chaplains on paid. They're, they're, part, they're paid by the Department of Corrections. They're prison staff. I think that gives Virginia a little bit of a different dynamic because this shows the way that the churches can get involved on both sides. And you have chaplains from both sides in the prisons at the same time. You have most of the guys that I talked to, in fact, all of the guys that I talked to were uh, abolitionists, whether by faith background or in terms of their experience. And that gave them a, 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 unif a relatively uniform perspective on what they had seen in there. It also gave them a relatively uniform perspective on the chaplains from the more retentionist side, the guys that would go in and <clears throat> try to, you know, that would try to compel or try to, co to try to convince prisoners to, to have, uh, to, to have a come to Jesus moment on the spot. These guys said, you know, this, this doesn't, this is not how we see these things. And this comes back to, again, the event versus process. The guys that would go in from, as one of the chaplains told me from the, shall we say more fundamentalist persuasions, um, are seeking to have this come to Jesus moment on, on the spot. They want it right then. They want it to be an event. They want it to be a thing that happens right now, starts, finishes, done. The chaplains that I talked to said, it just doesn't work this way. God works in his own ways on his own timescale. So what we do is we go in there and we say, how you doing? Have a conversation with the guy. They don't want to talk? Okay. Somebody else will. None of them, none of them, and this was something that struck me as very important, none of them felt called to do this work. None of them decided at any point that that's, this is what they were going to do. There were sets of circumstances that brought them all into the prison and brought them all onto death row. Um, none of them wanted it, but not one of them regrets having done it because it made them better, they think, in their quote-unquote Sunday job. Um, it made them better ministers to their congregation or to their parish outside of the prison. And they think that it gave them a better perspective on some of these issues of life and death and political power and equality and inequality and access to resources and all the, all the various social problems that, that set up and then define so much of our life. And they said you know, there's something you can't really appreciate until you're there, but gallows humor goes a long way when you're in a place like that. And they had some, they had some very, very funny stories to tell. Um, the kinds of things where you hear it, and you, you feel kind of guilty laughing about it because you know the context. <laughs> but they, you know, the, the moments on death row, they said forging the relationships with these guys was some of the most important work they'd ever done. And some of the things that they saw and some of the things that they did and some of the things that they took away from them will define them for the rest of their lives. Because in part, they are also searching for answers. 
they are looking for an answer to the question of whether they were comforting the afflicted without adequately afflicting the comfortable, whether they were sinfully participating in a process or whether they were doing the work that they should be doing. That is, were they ministering to these guys and making it easier for the state to kill them or were they helping them in their hour of need? And they, they cannot answer that question. One of them was talking about a letter that he got from an inmate. He said, how do you respond to this letter? Two brothers, both in prison, one of them on death row. He's vowed to fight all the way to the execution chamber. And so the prison officials approach his brother and say, talk him down. Talk him into going quietly. It'll be easier on all of us. It'll be easier on him. It'll be easier on you. Help us out with this. How do you respond to that as the brother? How do you respond to that as the chaplain getting that letter? Right? And that's a, that for them was a metaphor of the work that they do generally. Are they providing comfort to the afflicted without afflicting the comfortable? Are they witnessing the way that they thought that they should? And they just don't have an answer for that. It's a very difficult um, issue to try and struggle with. And you've taken us over a lot of ground um, and raised up a lot of interesting questions. Can you tell us a little bit about how you pulled all together in your conclusion? The conclusion actually I, was the book starts and finishes on – in, in a real way, on June 25th, 2008, at a series of protests, there was a protest in Richmond outside the governor's office during rush hour traffic that I used to frame the introduction. Uh, and the conclusion, we have made it to the field outside of the prison in, <clears throat> excuse me, in Jarrett, Virginia, which if you want to know where that is, go to the dead middle of nowhere, hang a left and keep going for a while. You'll eventually <laughs> it is it is really nowhere. Um, we were this was the night of the 100th execution in Virginia since 1976 in the modern era it was also the day that the Supreme Court decided Kennedy versus Louisiana which was the case that said that um, a someone who sexually assaulted and sexually abused a child but neither killed nor intended to kill them could not be put to death. It, it, this is the case that really finally resolves the death penalty only for certain categories of murder. Um, one of the things that's done at these vigils that, uh, that this protest took is the names of all of the offenders who have been put to death and the names of their victims are all read out aloud and then a bell is struck for each name. And when we did this, in this session, there were probably 50 of us. I mean, so we went through the line and did this twice each. And then we waited. For executions in Virginia are set at 9 o'clock. Every, every state has their own time that they, that they set executions for. But we, you know, protesters who have done this a few times tend to know, well, if everything went on track, we should be seeing the hearse right about now. We didn't. Well, all right, sometimes these things take longer. Sometimes they're boss. We've heard enough about that this year. And we waited, and we waited, and it never came. And so the, 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 the conspiracy that was running through the ranks of the people there was, oh, well, they must have seen us outside the gates, and either they're delaying the hearse's departure from the prison, or they took it out on an alternate exit. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know whether that's true or not. Um, but we never saw it until one by one people left. I got home you know, that night and flipped on the news, and there's a clergyman, one from each side, pontificating about the rightness of the death penalty from the perspective of their faith tradition. It either is biblically just or is not. And that really, to me, encapsulates the entirety of the thing. The relative anonymity of the protest, the sort of generic pro and con talking points on the news after this matter-of-fact antiseptic process, this, this antiseptic procedure itself, uh, where someone is anesthetized to death, and if it goes well, it's reasonably, it, it seems, to be, seems to be reasonably painless, and that's what it's, exactly what it's designed to do. It's designed to seem painless, to spare 
everyone any discomfort. Um, but this sort of antiseptic, hands-off, anonymous way of looking at this vital question of life and death is really what I'm trying to get at here. What does this really mean when we use death to witness to life? And have we really thought about what that means about and for us? And if we haven't, maybe we should. Excellent. Yeah, it really wraps up, or I guess maybe I should say wraps up, but provides us a nice foundation for continuous discourse on the subject. So we've taken a lot of your time, and I want to thank you for that. But I'd also like to ask you the traditional uh, New Books Network question. What are you working on now? (laughs) Um, I'm working on a couple of things right now. I'm working on, I have a proposal out for a textbook on the Muhammad Ali draft dodging case, which brings together my interests in religion and law and sport in a new way. Um, That would be, if if it's picked up, this would be for undergraduate classroom use and explaining um, Ali's importance in his era from a new perspective, from the perspective of this case uh, where he did achieve uh, exempt status from the Vietnam draft. I'm also at work on a, on a monograph on West Virginia versus Barnett, the seminal flag salute case from the 1940s um, that shaped so much of free exercise and free speech doctrine in its wake. I'm looking at it in its historical context and in terms of the effect that it has had on law and cultural norms going forward. Well, excellent. Those both sound like really fascinating projects, and I want to thank you again for uh, giving us your precious time today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. Right. You have a good evening. You too. Thank you. This has been the Christian Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll be able to listen again soon. 